Okay, everybody, we have a whole new episode for you. The research absolutely never, ever stops. I mean, I thought that we were going to take more of a break this month after we'd finished the Iran-Contra episode. I thought it was like, we'll, we'll take a definite break for like a, maybe a week or two or something and <laughs> kind of like, you know, get back into it a bit slowly. But we really just kept going like, like the same day we were still doing more research about this and just kept going all month. Yeah, and it's also you know we uh, kind of kind of innovated new research techniques for this one. We broke into new territory, like uh, old newspaper archives. Newspapers dot com. Yeah, it's you know we're not sponsored by them, but you know if people want to deep dive some history, seriously go for newspapers dot com. There are some other sites kind of like that, but yeah, that was that was your very key recommendation. You were like, I don't know if this is like, uh, maybe we should try it out, and maybe it'll be worth it. I'm not sure. And it's like all I was doing for like a a lot of portion of this research was just going through and like clipping. All the articles that mention certain people's names, and you know, yeah. And there's like, you know, you'll get like two thousand hits or something. I'll be going through there, literally, like screenshotting each one, uh, like downloading them all on my computer, putting them into a combined PDF. It's like, you, you know, you, there's so much that isn't even it hasn't been talked about before that I found in these newspapers. Yeah, and one of the things when we were doing the Iran Contra episode that I noticed. Was like go even like back in the eighties, like newspaper articles would have like so much more detail than they have today. And it's like, oh, this is really weird. Like you could like find really valid leads from just like a UPI article from like nineteen eighty two. But like getting newspapers.com and going back to, you know, like the fifties, the forties, even like the eighteen nineties. And it's insane how much detail like newspapers used to have. Like you can tell like a really palpable difference between like newspapers of that time and newspapers of today. It's really, and as time goes on, it gets way more syndicated. Mm -hmm. And so the results that you get are just like super polluted of just, you you know, you get a thousand duplicates of the same fucking article. Yeah, you see it a bit in the 1950s, but not nearly as bad as it, you know, gets going forward. Yeah, and then you get to the 70s and it's just like, you can't even find anything. Yeah, just don't even bother. Yeah. Yeah, the 40s and 50s is like the golden mean of uh, getting juicy scoops from newspapers. We'll be talking about a lot of those results that we kind of found. But this is, you know, the episode that we're going to do about development. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of the overall theme, if you can say that we have them. You know, I think this one is actually pretty conceptually uh, well centered around that concept. Yeah, I think this will be a much more straight, hope, fingers crossed, straightforward episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not going to be. It's not going to be because like last night, even like last night, we're just sitting like I'm downloading these fucking uh, air. What is it? Air uh, air supremacy magazines. <laughs> yeah. And just like looking at this stuff, uh, looking the, the Air Power League, Air Power, Air Power League, and I'm well like, going through the board members of Air Power League <laughs> because it'll, it'll, we have to like figure out the history of like the the Fort Worth Airport. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, l- luckily, I, I think that that will the, the Fort Worth Airport could probably be its own show entirely. So I know people will look forward to that one. 
Yeah, we got a lot of details about the Fort Worth airport. Uh, yeah, the, the topics are becoming increasingly arcane and esoteric. This one is going to be pretty arcane because it is about development, and you know we are going to go back and just now talk about nineteenth uh, century corporate law. It's going to be kind of like the starting point for for this episode. All right. This was uh, hard to kind of find a lot of information about this. Because what we ultimately want to talk about in this show, so this is why we're starting off in the, in this particular uh, spot, is we want to talk about, um, you know, if obviously there's all these books out here of various different qualities about uh, William Donovan, about the OSS. You know, there's like th- three mm-hmm. uh, William Donovan biographies. Like the, one of them, you had the last hero you were looking at, and I have this other one. Um, yeah, Last Hero is the one that I use the most. I have one by um, Richard Dunlop. It's just called Donovan, America's Master Spy. And we, we, you know, we had all these books, like um, you know, kind of about the immediate post-war, uh, you know, 1945, 1946, kind of like what happens to a lot of the people in the OSS, in the State Department, and. Uh, there's always this company that's mentioned, usually only in like a paragraph or at most a page. Mm-hmm. It's called World Commerce Corporation, and uh, no- which we did touch on very briefly in the in the last episode. And nobody really knows exactly what it's about, so it's a great breeding ground for a lot of I think misinformation and just speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, different books, especially online, about what people talk about it. You know, we were looking at some pretty crazy kind of blog theories that people had about this. Like, yeah, you know, what is what is this company? Well, like even even in the official books, will have like incorrect information. Like the last hero is considered kind of like the biography of William Donovan. But when it talks about the World Commerce Corporation, it doesn't get very many details right. Like it gets members right, but it doesn't get the day, you know, the date of its creation. Like it's off by a couple years. And you know, part of the you know, part of the problem is like the different laws and different subsidiaries. And it's like you can tell that the, a lot of times people are looking at uh, kind of the date that it was formed in Panama versus the date that it was formed in Delaware. <laughs> and so um, you know, we we just started trying to look at more into this and figure out like what this actually was because it's like uh, William J. Donovan, who's obviously the kind of general who was uh, in charge of the OSS, and we're going to talk you know more specifically about his actual career in this episode. But mm-hmm. um, you know, he he teamed up with William Stevenson, kind of his his uh, English counterpart, and. Yeah, for people who don't know, like uh, Stevenson ran something called the British Security Coordination, which was like kind of an outpost of uh, MI6 and the Special Operations Executive in uh, New York City during World War II. So this was like the prime position for British intelligence, and it was run out of Rockefeller Center, and they worked extremely closely with like Donovan and the OSS. And not only that, but kind of William Stevenson had permission from FDR to kind of nudge America into the war. So they were actually kind of doing some different black ops, if you want to call it that, uh, sort of propaganda work uh, to help nudge America along. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a perfect term. Yeah. Yeah. 
They, they did a lot of uh, a, a real specialty was uh, industrial espionage, which they did in both America, but also uh, very heavily in Latin South America. You know, like uh, German industrial interests in Brazil was something that uh, Stevenson and crew were very interested in. And you know, it's it sounds really nefarious, but we're going to demystify this for you. And uh, you know, we're not. 100% complete with any research on this, you know, it's this it takes a lot of time to investigate. We're going to mm-hmm. probably be coming back to this later, but we did have found a lot of stuff about this and started putting together this narrative. And so, you know, we'll we'll get more into those specific guys, but what really got me was in you know, one of the books there's like this offhand mention in like the two paragraphs about World Commerce Corporation, uh, it mentions that they were cornering the market on soybeans. And yeah. it's just like what what the f- what does that mean? What are they doing? And that really like I think got us going on like figuring out what was actually going on with this company. Yeah, because you know that's something that we'll end up seeing like a whole bunch is that uh, kind of monopolizing uh, you know various kinds of resources, be it soybeans or you know uh, asbestos or you know diamonds maybe uh, that is kind of pearls uh, you know cotton yeah it's it's their whole thing potash yeah yeah I don't even know what potash is I don't even know I didn't even you know I guess I should have looked that up <laughs> I was focused more on the tankers uh, as always so you know there's a there's a lot here oh yeah there's a heavy heavy dose of pe- tanker in here yeah there's a lot of tanker tanker pills in here to come but in order to kind of understand this because what we're the, the point is is that Donovan and Stevenson and you know Nelson Rockefeller is p- part of this too and there's a, a guy named Edward R Statinius jr who was the Secretary of State at the end of World War II and he's one that I think very few people even have heard of in fact even his predecessor who's FDR's like primary Secretary of State for his administration was Cordell, was a guy named Cordell Hull. And I, I think that he's not even that discussed that often. I hadn't heard of him much before, but yeah, but I, I feel like I've heard of Hull a lot more than I've heard of Statinius. Yeah, no one talks about Statinius. You know, there's not, uh, you know, at the Library of Virginia or whatever. There's all of his his papers take up like tons and tons of boxes, like filling a you know a whole room, and, and uh, you know there hasn't been like a really detailed investigation of of anything that this guy has done. So, but we we kind of are starting to go down that path, mm-hmm. and uh, we're gonna we're gonna get into that. So, all these guys, you know, the point is that the, they were kind of forming these these companies and World Commerce Corporation is one of them, and then there's some other ones as well mm-hmm. that uh, start forming this kind of interlocking network of these of these kind of weird companies right at the end of World War II, and so uh, you know people. They don't even know uh, really concretely what these companies were, what they were doing, and you just get a few mysterious little hints. And you know, we want to kind of demystify that. So the reason we're starting out in the 19th century is we're going to start out with just some actual information about corporate law, so we can actually talk about these board structures and like what what is a board how does that work how does a company work mm-hmm. and you know i think that's actually it's very important for this kind of um structure that gets developed by these people it's not incidental it's not just they made companies yeah you know it's very 
important and connected to that. I and I just want to say like th- this is pretty relevant to our past episodes because something that was really important and you know especially in the Iran Contra episode was the whole theme of like interlocking boards. You know you, you would have like organizations that overlap with one another and that allows them to coordinate their activities. But the thing is, is that the whole like concept of the interlocking board ends up having like a very deep and structural history that predates, you know, that time period for, you know, quite a few years. So it's not like an aberrant feature, but it's actually something that's quite like built into the world system as we know it. Um, We were you know talking about that a little bit. Going back a good century. Yeah. Yeah. We we kind of mentioned that, that the way that intelligence operations kind of uh, came about where was that it was all these corporate lawyers and they were really, you know, obviously good at starting companies and structuring enterprises like that. Exactly, yeah. Uh, from like a legal, you know, and so it was a lot of legal kind of technology, if you will, that they were employing to build up the whole intelligence network. And we were talking about how really, uh, you know, the origins of uh, modern intelligence organizations really go back not to previous military intelligence operations, uh, you know, in centuries past of of ninjas, uh, you know, crawling around in, in their black outfits and stuff and spying. It's like <laughs> we were making the point that it was really uh, kind of in these corporate information networks at the end of the 19th century that, you know, you see the origins of this and that because those same corporate lawyers were so instrumental in developing modern corporate law, you know, it, it was very significant that those same techniques and kind of structures were duplicated over into like the Iran Contra network. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I remember like when, when we first started digging into the World Commerce Corporation, uh, you know, there, there was a document in the National Archives. It was like a I can't even remember what it was exactly. It was like recollections of OSS officers. And in it, there's um, like a whole chapter written by a woman who worked for World Commerce Corporation. And she like straight up says in one part, she's like, I guess this was the forerunner of like Oliver North's enterprise or something like that. The whole idea of like running these like kind of private companies that aren't directly attached to the government to carry out um uh, you know, espionage and covert activities. Yeah, which seems really misleading. And I guess we'll we'll talk about that later because there was a great book that uh, I actually got a lot of information from. It's called Shadow Warriors. Um, and mm. that really was a history of the OSS that was very specific. It's called The Shadow Warriors by Bradley F. Smith. I really recommend this book really highly because it really does focus on kind of you know, the fact that all these people who started the OSS and who started kind of MI6, which, you know, was also uh, new coming into the war, was they were all lawyers, they're all businessmen, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the one of the things here that we kind of want to stress is that there's not this black and white, you know, dual distinction between uh, intelligence activities and psychological warfare and all that. All those shenanigans, you know, those aren't divided uh, from kind of business activities, what you would consider to be, you know, normal business. Business as usual, yeah. 
it's it's really that's a kind of a false distinction that I, I think people get tripped up by. But really, the more that you look at it, the more that you realize that those two things are actually the same thing. Yeah, then there's kind of like this notion that you know the that the the uh, like uh, covert side of things kind of corrupts normal business. But I think like the real like takeaway is that like no, this isn't like corruption. And I think we drove that pretty like home pretty well like in the Iran Contra episode. They're like what we're dealing with isn't you know like you have a system and these outsiders kind of penetrate it and transform it into what they want. Like no, like th- this is pretty like integral and baked in to the system like itself as it develops over time. And so, you know, this ended up with us going back trying to reconstruct a lot of these things about corporate law and like where does the Panama corporate law code come from? Where does it come from in the U.S.? And we've talked about that before, uh, you know, that uh, Sullivan and Cromwell had been involved in getting the New Jersey corporate law passed in the you know, 1890s. And then we, mm-hmm. we've gone even further back here. And I guess the natural place that we decided to start is where we want to talk about the French SA company, as it's called, uh, which stands for Societe Anomine. Yeah. Uh, anonymous society. That's so fitting. Yeah, effectively secret society, you know? Yeah, that's what I love about it. It's like, uh, if you look at Panama corporations today, uh, that's what they are. They're SA companies, which literally is, it's, comes from this French civil code. It's the 1804 Code Civil. Um, that is what is used by all these shell corporations that are formed in Panama is that they're all, you know, uh, instituted and incorporated under the SA form, which goes all the way back to, you know, the age of Napoleon. Right, and, and circumstances of how it kind of emerged are fairly murky from the from what I could tell from the stuff that you were telling me. Like, you know, there, there was one person who did a bunch of like, you know, uh, wrote a whole, I, I think, a dissertation on the topic. But the dissertation, like, you can't find any physical copies of it today. That's the the Delaware, the eighteen ninety nine Delaware oh, that's law. Delaware. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, no, no, no. It's the Delaware law. That's one thing. Is that, uh, you know. Uh, I guess we got we got some controversy uh, going on 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 the on the Twitter or whatever, which you don't have to worry about. But uh, just uh, some people were like, uh, you know, don't just don't. Uh, they're kind of suggesting that people already know about all this and it's all really well established. It's not really because I was literally going through uh, JSTOR trying to find papers about like where the 1899 Delaware law comes from like who who wrote it who wrote that law yeah and it's like you can't <laughs> that information doesn't exist as far as i know because it, i found one dissertation like you just said Ed, that uh you know referenced i've it was a paper that referenced a dissertation and the paper said that you know the the 1899 Delaware code had been written and kind of uh promoted by a certain group of people. It does not say who the group of people is because nobody knows because apparently that information was in a dissertation in Harvard's library that is lost. So uh, that's, uh, as far as anybody knows, that's all the information that they have. So it turns out that a lot of this stuff is, it's absolutely not known, uh, you know, (laughs) unfortunately. Which is just in- incredible in my mind, because because I also like after you sent that went on a pretty deep hunt. You know, it's like oh, may- maybe it's been updated since then, 
maybe you know it, it's been a uh, bit been discovered because you know they find like people's documents in their attics when they pass away and stuff. But, like no, it's 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 still missing, and the guy never appears to have really written anything else. So <laughs> the origins of Delaware law are quite literally a mystery, and it seems that's also the case for the kind of essay as well, right? In Panama, yeah. Well, you know, this goes into a, like a broader historical debate that uh, people have in, in this field uh, because it, I'm sure people know kind of the common narrative of where it's the Dutch and English uh, East India companies, which are considered to be like the the forerunners, the model, the prototype for for all later corporations. Mm-hmm. And that's not you know necessarily wrong. I mean, that's kind of like what I what I thought, but there is a lot more detail to that history and um, you know. People have. I found a whole kind of book looking at uh, how actually a more important influence is like French medieval mills. Yeah, as as like the basis for corporate structures. Hey, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there, and you know, from from my perspective though, uh, is this SA company in in France, which gets uh, in, installed kind of under this, you know, uh, new legal codes. It's you know the new civil code of 1804, and then there's the uh, commercial code of 1807, and this kind of sets up the formal different kinds of corporations that uh, mm-hmm. you know are available to citizens to create, right? Yeah. And the SA company is not the only one. There's there's three different types of corporations and that's generally how it is like even in Panama today it's not like you just go and say Panama I'm going to make a Panama corporation it's like you know you have, you have a few different options and you can you know have a a corporation where it's your shareholders uh, get their shares and the shares are like registered to them or associated with their name uh, in like a public way so that if you, you if you have the shares uh, you can't like cash them in or trade them or anything, right? Right. Any of these certificates, if it's a corporate bond or if it's a share, you, you can't do anything with it unless you're that person who's associated with that share, right? But that requires, uh, you know, making a public list of who's in the company and who owns the company. And so, you know, that's one way you can do things. But then this SA company, the reason it's called an anonymous society. Is because it's the 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 shares of it work like uh, bearer bonds, right? And with a bearer bond, uh, anybody the point is whoever bears the bond, you know, you're the owner. It does. There's no register of the owners of the different certificates that the corporation issues, right? Right. So that's the anonymous part of it is that you know you you don't have to keep these records. You don't have to make them public. There's there's a you know obviously. In modern corporate code, lots of different formulations of this, like with the Panama Code, right? That we're going to uh, talk about. Uh, you, you can't get any of those records of like who shareholders are. Right. You can. You can usually like, from what I understand, because you know I looked around at this a lot, is that maybe it's like a certain amount of time after a company has dissolved itself that you can like go in person to like the Panama. I think it's called like the Mercantile Registry still, and you you can request uh, to see. You know, like you you can start to look at actually what was going on. But it's you know very strict circumstances on you know wh- when and who can do that. Yeah, so we have, we have like these Panama papers, 
Um, you know, I was up, looking back on it, I'm kind of disappointed in the whole Panama Papers like leak thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, it, it, I feel like that was uh, kind of a, a a sham in a way because now the more that I look into it, uh, I don't know. They blew that one woman up over it, like mm. she got exploded in a car bomb. But yeah, like I, I don't know. I, I go through. Uh, I've looked- Looked a lot at like the Panama Papers website. Uh, pr- pretty much like any person we come across, like I've been clicking their name in, and you know, quite often they'll come up. But there's no like revealing information really attached to that. It will just tell you who the who the registered agent for that person was, and you don't really get any additional information. Yeah. So you know, you use a registered agent in these cases. Like if you make a company in Delaware, um, if you'd go and p- just make the company yourself. You're going to get issued like a, a certificate of incorporation, right? It's going to say your name on it, right? Yeah. So what people do is they actually hire a you know third party intermediary lawyer who will register the company for them, and then the certificate only says their information. And so if you if you're making companies like in Delaware, you don't publish anything about yourself. You know, all that is secret. Right. And and here's like a research tip for people. Um, Quite often, the you know you can get the name of people's attorneys or the attorneys that are being used. Quite often, those are very revealing. So you can start tracing like the social network of the attorney in uh, in general, and you'll discover like a lot of like little details maybe about the the corporation or company that you're investigating. Yeah, uh, you know we we wanted to order kind of the the tax the franchise tax filings. That turns out to be the only kind of public thing that you can actually access about who's even part of a company like who's the board of directors of the company right mm-hmm. the only way to get that information is through franchise tax filings which Delaware does not post online for any kind of like easy access obviously yeah uh, you, you have to like pay for it and like actually make a formal request to, to them to actually give it to you but otherwise all the other paperwork for a company, Registered in Delaware or, or in Panama, it's it's all secret. So we have all these World Commerce Corporation papers, uh, you know, that w- were only obtained after the company dissolved. And so, yeah, yeah, like twenty years after. That's the only only way that we got it. And so, all of that of both, like the the New Jersey, the Delaware, Panama, is like this kind of like form is going back to this this French form. And so. There's a few different kinds of corporations that the 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 commercial code of 1807 uh, sets into place, and uh, the argument that uh, I was reading was that the SA Corporation wasn't really new, so to speak, and I, I guess technically, in kind of scholarship about corporate form, uh, a lot of people kind of consider it to be new because the SA Corporation was not listed anywhere in previous codes. Mm. And so people kind of look at the SA Corporation and they think that it's this new uh, manifestation of capitalism, like it's a new invention. Uh, The argument that I was reading um, actually was disputing that, trying to say that really this is kind of a a formalization of a public... um, Kind of service corporation or project that had existed for a long time already, and that it's not really like a private enterprise so much as the point of these corporations is really based around uh, the the services that they provide to the public, 
which is I think is really important because what these SA companies become are they like the first investment banks? And that's that's kind of like what we're the point that we're meandering towards is that you know that's where it gets really significant, right? And in the fact that it's like kind of like shrouded in secrecy, that's also really not entirely new. Like I, I was reading some stuff, especially like when we were diving into like offshore, you know, offshore finance, which is intimately bound up with the uh, SA corporate form. And for, from what I can tell is that like the kind of like transparent money flows that we kind of take for granted in the contemporary era, it's not really the natural, you know, I'm not quote unquote natural because it's all developmental and artificial. But um, generally speaking, money is usually hidden. Um, and so when you have like offshore finance, it's really that that's kind of the historical standard and how money has operated. So it kind of seems like that would make sense from the uh, perspective of the SA company being a public company, but it's still kind of shrouded in secrecy. It's kind of a reflection of like a, a very long term tendency um, in capitalism that, you know, we, we kind of neglect today. There's, would you say that's correct or incorrect? No, I you know I think that is a a really uh, important feature about these older corporate forms is that they kind of uh, dissolve these false distinctions that people make between kind of these private capitalistic like trade formations and then these like public enterprises and you know there's actually a you know. A, a very blurry line between them, which is the point of the SA Corporation, is that uh, you know, in order to build big things like a railroad, <laughs> right, is you need a lot of capital to do that, right? Yeah. And so, really, before an investment bank, uh, you know, was created for the first time that was really able to do this, uh, you had to rely on a very limited kind of uh, number of sources for funding, right? And obviously the government is going to be probably you know, the main one that's going to be able to give you money to make a canal, make a dam, make a railroad. Um, and so you know, before like the 18th century there wasn't as much need for that because people didn't weren't doing these big engineering and developmental projects. Right. But, you know, in the 19th century that changes. And you know you need a lot of capital for that, and sort of this is when this form becomes actually you know published and, and codified. Exactly. And uh, do you have an exact date, like on the the formation of these corporate forms? Uh, there was. It's in the eighteen oh seven. Yeah. Code. So that's that's where it begins. But there's not the point. You know, at first. This form isn't used very much. Yeah, and that's actually one of the arguments that is is made is that there's not really a kind of a new in innovation of a new capitalist era. Is that actually the business interests of the time treated it as uh, something that was kind of suspicious or uh, something that they weren't that interested in? And the reason for that was that it was kind of this formalization of uh, you know a publicly linked development. Enterprise that had already existed, but there was no need to codify it into a law because it was based on these, you know, privileges of you know the sovereign, kind of like working with you and setting up a project and you know financing it, uh, you know, directly. So there was no need to have this law on the books. 
uh, because it wasn't a very common thing and it was done usually under very special circumstances. But then, you know, that changes when it actually gets put into the law. So at first, for the first few decades, of only a very small number of like a dozen of these companies are are formed. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's a company that's called Credit Mobilare, uh, which is formed by these two brothers who had previously worked for the Rothschilds. Mm. And they had been Rothschild bankers and then they moved into starting their own bank called Credit Mobilare. This, the, 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 their name is the Pereire brothers. Um, and they start this development bank, which becomes the first investment bank and which has this insane developmental history of all these different projects that it was involved in where it built like all the railroads in Europe. Right. Yeah, and this was a joint stock company, right? Yeah, and that's that's you know the the main feature that really allows us to take off mm-hmm. is the anonymous form of it, right? Because you know, bef- like a, like with the different sources of financing, where you're getting it from the sovereign or the the government and their supply of money, or you would have to go to like the Rothschilds. You know, you're talking about these private. Uh, you know, individual people or families who just have a lot of money kind of like in their vault. And right. that's that's the only kind of mass accumulation of capital in a single place. Mm-hmm. And so the the innovation here with these anonymous societies is that it allows you to issue these anonymous stocks to people uh, and accumulate capital. And so you're basically able to then... Uh, sell your your stocks to the public, mm-hmm. right? And the public can now own your company and be anonymous. And so it allows this huge inflow of capital into Credit Mobilare from all of the, the middle class of the first few decades of the 19th century. So, you know, this was able to take all that new capital that this new middle class had been forming you know, since the French liberal revolution where this class is coming into birth and, you know, they're they're building up their capital reserve. They don't have anywhere to put it. And so you're able to suck it all up and then, you know, harness it and build, you know, these huge mega engineering projects, which not even the state or the, the Rothschilds had been capable of doing based on their own sources of financing. Yeah, and it's interesting, like, you know, they were going into, into railroads and stuff like that because this was really a time period where there was a, a you know a really rapid shift, you know, in kind of like the technical infrastructure of how like commerce was done. Like previously, like iron had been you know the the metal of choice, but this was the period when like steel was coming in, and steel at first was very kind of an, an expensive uh, substance. You know, over time, its price fell as its you know uh, supply increased. But kind of around this whole like steel and electrification and, you know, like uh, heavy engineering, um, you know, the early like chemicals and synthetic dye stuffs and all that of that nature. Like that is all the same time period that we're talking about. And these are things that revolutionized, you know, how production was done. This is kind of the formation of like modern production as we know it today. You know, at first, you know, the the price of these things did fall over time, but there were like massive, massive capital outlays that were required up front for this. And so what we're describing, I think, kind of plays right into, you know, this financing flow 
you know, how, how do you how do you go from this like kind of earlier phase of production into this new like very advanced technical formation? Yeah, and this is important for just doing things like building ships, right? Because this is like you're saying. Yeah, because this is the area of like steel ships. Like the introduction of steel into shipmaking just like was a massive acceleration in the like uh, capabilities. Building just even a, a full iron-bodied ship, right? Mm-hmm. You know that was a huge innovation. That's a big project. Uh, you know, even before you, you know, people know in like the Civil War, you had the ironclad ships, and you, you, these weren't, you know, kind of ad hoc uh, little fix-ups of existing wooden ships mm-hmm. with like paddle wheels or anything. Like we're talking about like building a ship from the ground up using metal, and that not only costs a lot of money, but it involves for the you know time very very high level technical sophistication. But even when you think about just logistically. Of what you need to do that in terms, you got to bring in all the supplies, all the metal to do that. Mm-hmm. You got to, you know, it takes a lot of labor. It, you know, you have to be able to, uh, you know, move the ship around and dry dock and, uh, you know, heave all these beams around. You need like machinery to do it. It's like, yeah, and with, with all that it comes uh, special, you know, various forms of specialization. And so with specialization, you know, you have like an ever complicating uh, division of labor and that requires, you know, v- various like forms of management who come in and oversee it. You know, engineers for the first time become like really central to production. And so this really kind of like reorganizes a corporate structure in itself. Yeah. And, you know, that... The, the more that it grows, you know, this is like the formation of economies of scale. And the more that all this kind of like kind of reinforces into itself, you know, it becomes kind of, a, a, yeah, a self-propelling kind of uh, reorganization or thing, you know, that's just the the capital costs, you know, capital requirements just escalate and escalate. So the, the you know, there's a much higher focus on financing structures than I think previously were present. Yeah, you know, and obviously anybody, if you think about it, you can easily imagine that, you know, these projects were big projects, but you really should, you know, be emphasized that you take a moment to kind of think about the different things that are going on in this era because this is also when the transatlantic telegraph cables are laid. They actually lay in the you know later half of the 19th century, they lay three transatlantic telegraph cables on the bottom of the fucking ocean. Uh, you know, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah it takes you know, uh, the first one is 1854 to 1858. You know, you look, you can go look at the pictures, they have giant. Cable spools like on the front end of the or the on the end of the ship, like pointing, uh, you know, dragging off of the off the line, being laid as the ship goes along. Like the, you know, it's crazy. It's a very big scale, you know, engineering effort. You have the the Suez Canal they build in uh, 1859. You know, uh, and then all these railroads that are getting built. You know, it, the scale I think of this cannot be underestimated. Because you know you you can look at a skyscraper today, or you can look at the English Channel today, and it's easy to take it for granted the similar projects that people did between like eighteen fifty and nineteen hundred. But really, uh, you know, in in relative terms, those projects were just as big. Yeah. It, you know, this was also kind of the time period where we saw like state ownership really kind of first emerge, like the idea of like public utility. 
studies. And a lot of that kind of came about on the basis that, you know, these projects were so massive that like it was kind of seen as something that private business itself simply couldn't do. Like there the risks of it, you know, they're so expensive and it's so risky that, you know, it would bankrupt so many companies if they just, you know, try to do this and they failed. So, like, com- you know, states acted as backstops. Um, and you, so you had, like, states coming in, you know, owning natural resources or acting as, like, kind of development combines themselves, kind of integrating. No, that's just what I was saying with the SA Corporation is that's the point of kind of the the way that it, uh, you know, explodes the, this division between public and private is that, you know, is it was, uh, you know, the Bonaparte family who's, you know, was ultimately the one who's working with Credit Mobilari to do this. And they were working in kind of like a joint way with the state to do all this development. And it was, so it wasn't, you know, a private capitalistic enterprise in any sense of, of the term that I think people ordinarily understand it as. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And it's pretty like I don't know. I, I was really interested in them, the the Credit Mobile brothers, the the Pierre brothers. Is that their name? Yeah, Pierre. I think is how you say it. You know. Yeah, Pierre. They're Sephardic Jews. They're yeah, they're Sephardic Jew Jews. There's two brothers, um, and you know we can talk about because they're 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 followers of of Saint Simon. Well, that's exactly what I was about to bring up. Yeah. Because if you go back to the writings of uh, Henri Saint Simon, like this kind of structure that you're talking about, where it's uh, private, there's no real distinction between the private and the public, where you basically have like industrial like syndicates in a way. Uh, I think he used the term houses. You know, there were like industrial houses where like kind of experts ran them. Um, like that was his whole idea. And I think that you can really kind of see that uh, in, a, in a kind of a concrete way in the way that they were doing their business. Um, and, you know, for, for St. Simone, like this was utopian socialism. Like this wasn't capitalism. This was like a higher stage beyond capitalism. And that's exactly how it ends up being as, as they're doing it. You know, it's, it is really uh, very much in accordance with these contemporary socialist ideas. And a lot of the people who are, you know, the thing with these this credit mobile is, right, it's an investment bank, but also they're spinning off all these other subsidiary efforts. Mm-hmm. And the advanced kind of interlocking board formations and, uh, you know, uh, companies own, you know, owning, owning each other's shares, that doesn't exist at this point. But it's through the, yeah. the two brothers uh, you know, because the companies don't own shares of one another directly, but the two brothers, Emil and Isaac Pereira, is that they, uh, you know, own a lot of the shares of every company that they set up through Credit Mobilare. So you, you know, have an attempt just through their direct ownership to kind of, um, you know, do these advanced forms of ownership that wouldn't be possible until like around 1900 when you actually get these holding corporations are able and trusts are able to hold everything together. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's funny because it's like kind of sounds almost like quaint in a way, this whole idea of like businesses owning shares of other businesses. But like it, it's really kind of hard to understate how revolutionary of a concept that that, you know, is like Marxists, you know, in, in the you know early 20th century talked a lot about like what they called like organized capitalism, which was like a capitalism that was no longer kind of the anarchic uh, laissez-faire economy of, you know, like 
Adam Smith or David Ricardo, but it was something that kind of like brought vast, you know, often different forms of uh, industry under like kind of a common control. But when you talk about like an organized capitalism, like th- this is really kind of the mechanism that produces it because it, it's the uh, the actual gears that allow a kind of common control to be exerted through, you know, these like ownership shares, you know, you can coordinate uh, a v- very different, you know, like a Vertical integration, for example, is only possible through this, you know, in order to buy up all the pieces that are in your supply chain that you need to kind of make a, make a product and then be able to like buy up, you know, your distributor. You can have a, a, you know, a commodity that you own the entire path from, from, you know, like the raw resources you need to make it, you know, down to the trucks that take it to your Walmart or something. Yeah. And you got to be... You know, think about it in specific terms about what it actually means to vertically integrate in that way because it's not, it does, you know, it's easy to say, oh, they buy the transportation, they buy this and that. It's, we're talking about like railroads in the 19th century at a time when the railroads are being built. That's how you transport it. So, even in order to do that, it's like you have to not only integrate different railroad com- companies, but you also have to integrate, you know, steel companies mm-hmm. which are building the tracks for the railroads and you have you know there's a exactly and this trickles down all the way into you know uh, where, where do you get the metals to make this thing? Well, you get them from mines. So you have, you know, companies owning it all the way back, you know, the very like point of extraction. Um, you know, just yeah. It, it's full and comprehensive, you know, what they strove yeah, they they were striving to to just really bring under their like kind of singular command. And you know, it's we're talking about like coal, iron, lead, zinc. You you know, in order to make steel, you need coke. You know, not not uh, Iran Contra coke, but you know, uh, you know, this is the fuel that you use. This is a byproduct of like charcoal that you make, and that's how you get the fires hot enough to make the steel, mm-hmm. uh, right? And you know, steel is uses iron, and then you you you, you combine it. And make an alloy. That's what steel is, is an alloy. So in order to do that, you need a really hot temperature. So you need to make all this coke. So you need the charcoal for that. It's like all those, even like basic like charcoal, that has to be industrialized. Like in the 18th century, you know, you used to have people whose jobs were just like, I'm a charcoal burner. Yeah. Right. And you, you know, you were making that, people made that on, uh, you know, a little, Fire like a campfire, like it's something that you make on your own in order to make mm. charcoal. Uh, that has to be industrialized. So before anything can happen, going into like the 20th century, is you need these these huge banks to start coming in and kind of structuring all of this, uh, you know, all the way down to the lo- the lowest possible level. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it's you know, just kind of, kind of really wild to think about. And after like kind of looking at that, like I, I've read a lot of like, especially uh, Saint Simone, and I, you know, I, I feel like the the fact that he was so influential on the brothers who kind of like really started to set this up, like I, I think that that needs a bit more work on it because this really is completely uh, his, you know, his his vision. Um, 
like for him, like it was always like a balance. Like you couldn't have too much government interference, but like, you know, that, that would kind of disrupt the whole thing. But if you had too little government interference, like that would also cause it to fall apart. And I think it's really interesting because like you can go through, you know, I read a lot of like different like intellectual histories of him. And there's like so many different like perspectives on what St. Simone started. Like, you know, I was reading a thing about like uh, the idea of technocracy. And it was, uh, it was like, oh, St. Simone was like the first technocrat. And then I was reading a thing about like, uh, it was Alvin Goldner's book on the new class, you know, which is like what people call the PMC today. And it was like, oh, St. Simone was the first of the new class. And then I was looking at something on uh, corporatism, you know, like uh, big corporate bodies. And I was looking at that and it was like, oh, St. Simone was the first corporatist. And it was like, all these you know different things that on their like fate you know the primary surface like look quite different they all kind of like trace back to this one you know intellectual point and you know it seems very kind of abstract and lacking in concreteness but then you know, like you look at these brothers and what they were doing you know partly under the influence of that's ideas and like oh you know this was a technocratic enterprise and you know the, the you know the, this did call forth like a, a new managerial strata in production and i guess in a way you could call them corporatists in like a very classical sense of the word because it was like this intertwining of public and private as like a you know things that held one another up up and treated the whole like of society as like a kind of a common body that was organized through this industrial structure. Yeah, but it's very primordial, so it's hard for anybody to look at later and kind of make sense of because he's coming directly out of the French Revolution, right? He, you know, I think his like teacher, right? Yeah, uh, his teacher. He went to oh yeah, it's the Ecole, uh, the Ecole Polytechnic, and his teacher was Gaspard Manga, who was actually the the head army engineer of Napoleon's expedition to Egypt. Hmm. Uh, and it's like you know, it's right around that time and sort of coming right off of the French Revolution. He's, he's kind of like coming up, uh, you know, during the 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 advent of Napoleonism, right? He, he is writing like his first book around like eight, 1802. He's starting these journals like in the 18-teens, like 1814, 1816. In 1816, he has a journal like uh, um, you know, he's, he's actually claiming uh, apparently that he uh, is the person who coined the term, terms industrial and industrial ization. Oh, really? Yeah, he does. He, you know, I, I miss that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, actually, um, Auguste Comte, who's a very important sociologist, he's actually the assistant who Saint Simone hires to help him do his early magazines. In fact, so yeah, and it, it's really kind of incredible because, especially you know, you, you you have the the Comte like connection, but um, you know, like uh, Proudhon, you know, uh, kind of a early socialist. Uh, he, he spent time in Paris, and he was for a while like very much under the sway of uh, Saint Simone's ideas. And then even in like Marx and Engels, you can find like pretty you know they criticize him a lot for being a utopian, but they also make pretty like ample use of his concepts. Like I think Engels talks about communism as being uh, what he calls like the administration of things, and I believe that that is taken like 100% from Saint Simone. Yeah, because he's, you know, he's a skeptic when it comes to 
uh, you know, mass sovereignty of like democracy. Is that he is that's what you're saying about him being you know the first technocrat? Is that that that's where that comes from? Is that he is crit- like he's coming out of the French Revolution, and so there is a tendency for some people to kind of read him as a socialist. Yeah, but and, and in terms of like a revolutionary like Jacobin, but he's he's not in the sense that he's opposed to democracy and that he's actually proposing that, uh, you know, the French Revolution fail for that reason. And really you need like a managerial class of people who are elite experts. Which is actually like not very uncommon for people coming out of the French Revolution. There is other utopian socialists who were, you know, came, came out of it who kind of like struck a similar line where it was kind of this rejection of like mass democracy where it was like they kind of, continued on with the revolutionary impulse, but kind of rejected like the logic of the revolution itself. And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, you'd almost read Napoleon in that light too, where like Napoleon is very much kind of like this reciprocal figure who is in a way like kind of carrying the revolution, but he's also negating the revolution by like, you know, uh, there's a famous like portrait of him like on the uh, on horseback. And, you know, I've, I've seen interpretations where the horse is supposed to represent that like revolutionary momentum. But Napoleon himself, what is he doing? He's taming the horse and to like drive it in a particular direction. Well, this goes that, right that back that's to Nixon. Kind of, what? This goes, oh, no, sorry. This goes right back to Nixon. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is the beast. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the beast. And but I think that that's true for like, you know, also kind of some of these technocrats that we're talking about. But yeah, that's a great point about yeah, Nixon's like a Napoleon figure. Yeah, no, it, it, you know, that's really where you know, you can see the kind of the conceptual uh, you, you know, continuity of all all this and how it, it works through history because also you know, Saint Simon, he was kind of like, you know, he vacillated between a different, a few different kind of positions, different groups that were supporting him, like in his more revolutionary kind of early years. Uh, you know, he would have been considered way more of like a crank and like a, a more of a revolutionary and that businesses wouldn't want to support. But then he actually, in order to do his magazines in like the 18 teens, he's being, you know, funded by industrialists to do that, like when he's working with Comte. And you know, after his death, uh, you know, he has a uh, very influential kind of direct following, like a, a real group of people who kind of come, um, you know, together around him by the time that he dies. Uh, that end up becoming known as like the Saint Simonian movement, you know, and that has that's what the Pereri brothers were part of. It's like we're not just talking about these in isolated terms. Is this is like a a very large kind of movement which actually goes all the way to the end of the 19th century. Yeah. And this is probably kind of like lays, because I guess like technocratic ideals especially have like a very kind of deep history in France. You know, there's very like the polytechniques and the, you know, engineering school and like uh, everybody kind of, you know, pop culture thinks as France is this very kind of like free floating, uh, like weirdos going off in abstract directions. But like that's really not representative of their uh, intellectual trajectory. And I think a lot of that definitely has to do with Saint-Simone. Yeah, and also it's just, they're so kind of conceptually mixed, uh, you know, in terms of, I feel like, different strands of what they were go in different directions, develop into their own independent kind of movements, which people are more familiar with, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, as individual things. And then the fact that they're all kind of mixed up 
and kind of this this kernel of, of Saint Simone, it, it gets you know kind of confounding because it's like you know Saint Simone's influencing utilitarians like Bentham, and then also influencing like Marx and Engels, and then yeah, you know also influencing Comte, and then the Pereira brothers. It's like uh, yeah, you know <laughs> how you, it's that's all those different movements are hard to reconcile because there is kind of like a free love hippy dippy kind of aspect to it too because by the end of Saint Simon's career he had moved into kind of religious thinking and kind of about like the culture the and spirituality of the world like the utopian socialist world that he's trying to create and so he's doing writing about that kind of speculating about what that would look like what it's going to be like the free love man kind of aspect of it and there's yeah, it's like a religion of science, and you know, it's very much like an early version of a like full automation kind of almost oh yeah retro futuristic uh, visions of the future. Mark Marcusean kind of yeah yeah. Is, you know, history just repeats itself, man. Yeah, it's left accelerationism is what it is. <laughs> but you know, his his followers, you know, uh, they do actually end up going to. Uh, North Africa to Egypt. And, you know, they are very uh, kind of obsessed with the image of Napoleon in Egypt. They're uh, early um, advocates for making the Suez Canal. And, you know, they do kind of this weird industrial kind of Saint Simonian missionary work, like in the Middle <laughs> East and in Algeria. And it's like, yeah, yeah it's very deep roots. Like, if you want to talk about like OAS, like, you know, in 1960, it's like you have to think, you know, you can start thinking about really seeing Simonian like in missionaries in Algeria, like, you know, a hundred years previously. But that's actually like the most fucked up thing I can imagine. It's like <laughs> the, the OAS emerging from Saint Simone. It was like weird because it's kind of true in this bizarre, you know, way. You know, yeah. I've, uh, just in this very like these conceptual kind of currents that are just going through history, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, developing all these different kind of institutions and practices and. You know, it's really all that's connected in in the end. You know, you can't have, there's no such thing as standalone independent knowledge branches or disciplines or, you know, they're all interconnected at the end of the day. Exactly. And I think that's really what I I hope people really take away from this. Uh, One question I've had, and maybe you can illuminate on this a little bit. Um, Was there a relationship? between Credit Mobilare in France and the railroad scandal of the same name in the United States? Or was it just coincidence that these two companies had the same name? It's a scam. It's counterfeit Credit Mobilare because this is this is the thing. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. My my puppy's uh, barking a little bit over here if you hear it, but it's fine. Uh so uh, there was a scandal in uh, America over Credit Mobilari, over the, a company that was called Credit Mobilari that was trying to set up a railroad that was actually a scam. Like you, they sold shares and they didn't deliver anything. It was a, a ripoff. And so they were actually trading on like the counterfeit Credit Mobilari name because that's how big Credit Mobilari was. That people in America, they're like, oh my God, they're, they have a Credit Mobilari America now? And they're going to build railroads <laughs> here? I'm going to get rich. 
And so they run out to buy their shares and it's just like a, a scam. But that's actually, this is a pretext actually in a lot of uh, kind of Victorian era novels, like uh, Dickens novels or, or Anthony Trollope novels. This is like my wife is big into Anthony uh, Trollope. So, she, you know, she was telling me a bit about this, but in a few of his novels involve like, you know, English politicians going to America and, um, you know, getting involved in this actual credit mobiliary kind of railroad scam, but the the overall kind of context is that credit mobiliary is so successful that they are actually setting up other credit mobiliary in, in other countries, and they're actually setting up full-on development corporations of uh, like shipping companies, right? Right, and you know they actually are engaging in uh, urban. Um, planning in Paris, and they own like hotels and districts in in Paris, and all these different companies are not like connected through direct ownership of like owning shares in one another, like I said. But you know they're all connected through the vision of the Prairie Brothers, who you know are really engaging deeply with this managerial problem and this technocracy problem of like. We have all these companies, and the scale is getting so big. Like, how do we even manage it? And like, they want to be. How do you coordinate it? Personally, yeah, they want to be personally involved in the operations of all these companies, but they can't be right. Mm-hmm. And you know, so the problem is like, how do we train managers? Like, and so they actually do turn to all the other Saint Simonians that you know to actually come in and, and try to direct these other companies, which they have mixed success with. Yeah, and I, I believe that this is the same period, especially in France, where you saw like a massive growth. Uh, th- these had existed uh, previously, going back, you know, like into the early 1800s. But uh, like technical institutes, you know, and engineering institutes, uh, you really kind of saw a growth of those in both France and England. And in, in America, they hit like a little bit later, like in the 1890s, early 1900s. But it kind of like drove this kind of cultural fixation on the fig- on the figure of the uh, the engineer, you know, like uh, or you know. A little bit later, you know, it kind of got watered down into the idea of the inventor, you know, uh, kind of a very classic American trope. But if you like kind of follow the inventor back to the engineer, then you can kind of trace it back to the explosions of like these like very technical management schools that kind of grew up around this need to coordinate these vast enterprises. Yeah, we, we've talked about this before in terms of the uh, uh, London School of Economics, the the New School in New York, mm-hmm. and these, these you know we can say that's like Fabianism that these schools. I mean, we say that because you know Beatrice and, and Sidney Webb, the leaders of the Fabians, they set up the London School of Economics. It's for the same reason as this to train these engineers, to train you know experts. And yeah, mechanics institutes is what they were called in like the 1840s. But yeah, then they became like engineering schools. And so it's all the all continuous history here because you know it, the when we say like the influence of something like the London School of Economics, it has to be understood in this overall development. It's not just a conspiratorial claim that you know there's a a, a professor at the London School of Economics who went to all the little students and said, you know, here's the secret plan and now you're under my influence and now you're going to go here and do this. And that's not the, not the point so much as that we're talking about like this very broad uh, development, which is 
intermingled and completely connected to the development of these large capital formations, large ver- vertically integrated corporations, you know, uh, uh, technical schools, experts, uh, you know, building railroads, huge engineering pro- projects. They're all the same thing. Re- regulations, uh, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. various ways of tracking, you know, um, uh, well, one thing that I thought was really cool that I was reading about is that, you know, like we have this whole concept of like the end of history, right? Uh, or post-history. It really kind of originates in this time period uh, with this French mathematician named like A.A. A. A. Cournot. And he wrote, a, you know, he was like kind of like looking out on these structures and he talked about how like society was moving to this place where, and this is a quote from him, where history is reduced to an official gazette recording regulations, statistical data, which therefore ceases to be history in the customary sense of the word. A new phase in which people are able to calculate the exact results of a clockwork mechanism. So like, you know, people are always talking about like, you know, history's ended. But like that concept itself is also kind of intimately woven into the the emergent structure that we're describing. Yeah, and you know, we have to think about this in terms of like historicism of uh, you know anybody who studied the history of like sociology or, or economics, you're aware of the, the so-called like historical school of economics, like of people like Weber. Mm-hmm. You know, what does that mean? Is that those people like um, you know Max Weber and and Simmel and you know the, what, that what it means for them to be historicists is that they're recognizing economic theories as historically contingent as being products of the you know contemporary societies that are using those theories in order to kind of you know understand their own economic development and so. Yeah, the, you know those. It's a reflective, reflexive process of these, you know, theories and uh, you know the processes that are you know they try to conceptualize where they're looping back around with one another and influencing the development of one another. Yeah, the, the, it's a dialectical relationship, isn't it? Uh, in this kind, of, they, they or you know, in like a more cybernetic term, you know, like a, a feedback relationship. You know, I you know we're we're Marxists here. I'm you know yeah. I know I, I I'm a good Marxist. So well, I just like you know, but but for the cybernetic heads out there, you know, I'm just gonna throw it in because I think that the dialectical kind of concept, dialectical materialism, is really uh, a very important thing to kind of understand when we start getting on this the such a theoretical level of the interactions of these different kinds of you know things mm-hmm. is that. You know, knowledge and you know the the things that we have knowledge about are in a uh, you know mutually influential relationship with one another. Yeah, exactly. So that's very you know important to note. Yeah, that's just so much more like. But I don't know. You're you're more of a Marx expert. You're like more the Marx the Marx head. I I like you know. I had to turn for you to guidance. You are always sending all these amazing, like Engels quotes, which are, are are just amazing. Which that was the in the beginning of the last episode, we were, had a little Engels quote, which is directly related to what we're talking about now. Is describing the same stuff. If you remember the intro, I know you could easily plug that quote again in the beginning of this. But no, but I think that what we're describing is kind of exactly what they were so plugged into. 
Um, you know, like it, it, it's kind of, especially like in, in like the later parts of Capital, you know, Marx's big emphasis is what he calls on like the the centralization and concentration of capital. And when he talks about that, what he's describing is very much like this like tendency towards like massive firms, your economies of scale, you know, your machinery of production that can, you know, produce on scales that previously to that had been kind of like unimaginable. And so for him, like this is really kind of like what it's all about is that, you know, these old ways of doing production, of doing commerce, they, you know, kind of get annihilated under this this form that's always increasing in scale and scope. Yeah, and it's a unification process of, of centralization. They, they're trying to draw together all these different elements, right? And they're, you know, <laughs> that's the the difference here between how things were done previously because you, it's you know so easy to take for granted all of this history that we're talking about now with these you know an SA corporation and the French uh, you know commercial code and the credit mobiliare and it's like if you look at how things were done uh, for the most part like previously or even parallel to this it's all partnerships and that was the preferred form like you could form a joint stock company if you wanted to like for all this period you know going back to you know 1700 or or whatever before you know before the american revolution or you know people didn't do that it was an option that they could easily have done but they didn't do it because it you know they preferred these partnerships as the working formula. And that's just like, you know, you're not a corporation, it's you and another guy or your other partners, and that's it. You are the joint owners of this firm, and the scale of the firm is very limited because because of that. And you can't really even pass it along through different generations. You know, a lot of times when, when one of the partners dies... That's it. The company's just dissolved, and then the person, the uh, you know, the survivor, the guy who's left, he just starts another partnership. So this is a very flexible form that's dissolving constantly. And if you have like a law partnership in the 19th century, it's like nepotism is a really big thing too, in how you actually get the the people in your office, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have like your friend. Uh, who's from this such and such family, and you want to make a connection with them? You take your your friend's son who just got out of law school, and you know you bring him into your firm. And the way that it would work is that they, you know, a law clerk wouldn't get paid. It was a, a you know unpaid internship <laughs> where the, they got paid in the experience of watching you be a lawyer, and then they also got like access to your library of law books. Uh, and case studies and stuff like that. Uh, and that that was the usual arrangement. And all that kind of has to be done away with before the 20th century begins in order to, you know, have Wall Street, right? You know, you can't have a rinky-dink little partnership. Like, that's what, uh, I guess, you know, because we're doing this in the holidays, uh, Christmas Carol, like, you know, what's the guy's name? Crockett! And you know, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Like, they're in a, they're, that's like the same kind of uh, business that we're talking about here. This is a little rinky-dink partnership, and they had their little coal stove. And you know, the guy coming in, he's like, "Crack it! And you can't burn that coal. Take that coal out." <laughs> I, I think I know what you're talking about. The, the imitation's good. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. 
I'm I'm mostly familiar with the Muppet Christmas Carol, so. Uh, Same. That's all I really know. (laughs) But that changes by the end of the 19th century where now you have to get a new professionalism and a new managerialism that comes in and takes over. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a specialized form, and it's really kind of out of joint, you know, with, uh, you know, like, uh, it's, I don't want to use the term like small business. That's not a very good term for it. But, you know, these, yeah, these smaller, uh, more kind of like localized uh, economic formations, it's just it, the, the, the higher specialized professional like managerial, just it's a completely different kind of beast. Yeah, because what we're talking about is they had these commerce houses, like commercial banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, what that would mean if you were a, a trader, a, a transatlantic trader who's doing business between like the you know American colonies and London, right? Is that uh, this is how J.P. Morgan starts? This is the you know previous generations before J.P. Morgan is that this is the this is the kind of where their business starts is that you know as J.S. Morgan who goes to London and he has a little business there and it's a little partnership and you know when you're an American businessman trader and you go to London and he's kind of like almost an you know a little embassy a commercial embassy in London that American traders can go to and they can take out little loans if they need them you know and they can get different kinds of legal services or financial services uh, and you know, even intelligence services as the 19th century goes on, and these networks of these different kind of little uh, elite uh, commercial, you know, banking houses, th- those get built up, and information is allowed to spread between them as transport as transportation and communication lines are developed, and that's kind of like the the founding of the you know uh, the intelligence network, right? Yeah, I'm looking, I got this in my notes, so just give me just a second while I pulled up. But I found like a really interesting quote. um, And this is, oh yeah, here it is. Um, It's describing uh, like this intelligence network that kind of formed around uh, uh, Kuhn Loeb. And this is a little bit later than we're talking about, but I think it gives like a really good idea of how these intelligence networks form. But um this is a New York. This is a, I don't know if you want to just clarify what this because this is an important company, Kuhn, Kuhn and Loeb and Co. Right? This is like a, a big, big company that yeah. is very important. It's it, it's based out of New York, but their intelligence network was described as a, an international fraternity, and so this was like an intelligent network that was uh, not really like. You know, it, it serviced Kuhn Loeb, but what it really was, it was like a reflection of kind of the social networks that formed around kind of like the Kuhn Loeb like leadership and management. So they called it like a, a international fraternity. They said the quote unquote they maintained between them an incredibly accurate network of economic, political, and financial intelligence at the highest level. The group could withdraw support here provide additional funds there, move immense sums of money with lightning rapidity and secrecy from one corner of their financial empires and influence the political decisions of a score of countries. Yeah, and that's, you have to think about in terms of these social connections. That's why we talk about things in these sociological terms, and that's why it's so fundamental, I think, to a proper understanding of what this is. Like, what is intelligence gathering? Like, what does the CIA do 
you know, it's they don't have little spies that they just send out that are, you know, going on the secret mission and they open the safe and, you know, actually there's one story that maybe we'll talk about that does involve breaking a safe, but, uh, <laughs> you know, for the most part, it, it's that's not how it really works at all. We're talking about businessmen uh, and we're talking about, uh, you know, well-connected people like these lawyers, uh the social networks that form between them, uh, the the fraternities that they're part of in college, mm-hmm. the civic organizations that they're part of, uh, you know, the social clubs they join. Social, you know, these are very, you know, nobody thinks about these so much anymore. But it's like the Rotary Club, you know. Oh, it's incredibly important. Yeah, yeah. Even um, like diplomat, like positions in government, were a long time were like considered like social functions. Uh, like I, I was actually kind of looking at the biography of Joseph Kennedy and it talked about like the position of ambassador to the United Kingdoms was considered like the highest like social honor you could get. Like all the, you know, kind of like Anglophile, you know, uh, Ivy League graduates, they were all kind of like vying for this. And, you know, if you got this position, that was like the highest social capital. So even like government, you know, formal government structures are kind of an extension of the social networks as well, which I think is a really important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, and so it's really just through the natural spread of information of these people talking to one another that intelligence happens, right? That's how intelligence is collected, is that you're William Donovan or, uh, you know, someone who works in the OSS or whatever. It's like, I was in, uh, you know, a fraternity at Yale. I was part of this secret society. You know, I'm part, I'm a Rotary member. I'm a, uh, you know, what are those knights called? Uh, then, oh man, it starts with an M, I feel like. Ah, whatever. Uh, you know, mm. these, these, uh, little, you know, civic kind of groups that seem so rinky-dink today that's like you see them, you know, a sign on the highway. Right. right? It's like Rotary Club or whatever. It's like, no, this is, you know, this is how people spread information is that you were in all these different groups and it's like you talk to your friends who are in, you know, other groups or in different, the same group who's in a different part of the world, and you learn things about what's going on there. And it's like that's your that's intelligence. Exactly, and it's funny in a way because uh, you know you look at like the history of like unions, and it's really just kind of the exact same thing, but it's from you know like a, a different kind of class background than the you know the the one that we're you know more concerned with here but like the same principle these were clubs or people of like you know you diff, you know the same industry they could all kind of like get together and talk and share information it's the exact same model and so th- that's what ends up kind of spreading uh with these different little banking firms right is these are yeah. small ventures but they're you know multiplying all over the world as kind of uh imp- you know, 19th century imperialism is taking shape, right? And, you know, you're, you have to set up things like this, you know, in Africa. You have to set up things like this in Hong Kong or, you know, Singapore or these different places that the British Empire is going. And now you have your merchants who are, Japan is open. You're going to Japan for the first time. You have your commercial ships and private traders who are going there. And it's sort of like you need to set up, you know, uh, these people take opportunities to start these little commercial firms so that, uh, anywhere in the world that an English trader goes, they can get credit, or you know they could yeah exactly yeah. So that that's really the key here, and this is exactly what J.P. Morgan starts as. Yeah, 
And which, you know, William Donovan, he got his start as like a, <laughs> a intelligence guy for J.P. Morgan. Like he was going around collecting the data for this kind of stuff to happen. And yeah, this is where all of the initial generation of the what we call the foreign policy uh, kind of establishment, they're all coming from this background, right? This is the background of uh, William Sullivan, right? This is the background... Uh, you know, of all of these, uh, you know, different people, and we're talking about ultimately very small number of firms. Uh, Kuhn, Loeb, and Co. is one. Mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan's another one. Uh, you know, Harriman Brothers. Uh, you know, Brown Brothers, and you know, those famously become Brown Brothers Harriman. That's where like uh, George H.W. Bush worked. Yeah, and so it's like you know, uh, it's not supposed to be like a big spooky thing. Necessarily, that you know George H. W. Bush worked at this law firm, which is really one of the, or uh, worked at this banking firm that was one of the most important ones, you know, kind of around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, you know, uh, the point is, is that these social networks run really deep. Yeah, it, and that's what it's all built off of. Yeah, it, it derives from kind of like these social networks to form, but then there, the, a lot of these institutions are there to kind of cement in place pre-existing social relations, but also kind of like selectively add to the social networks as time goes on. Like, uh, you know, like capitalism itself kind of has to reproduce itself. You know, that's like with the function of like profiting and then reinvesting, you know, in, in labor and in production. Like that's how capital itself kind of reproduces itself. But you also kind of have to have this reciprocal reproduction of social relations that happen alongside it, you know, in order for that to continue onwards. So I think that that's a, a key component of it all as well. Because this this is what a board is. This is why we're talking about this, because this is like what the function of a board is, right? Yeah. Because what is you have your board of directors, and these are like key owners, really. Obviously, with a big public corporation it's like you have so many owners and they all have such a small share but you know these uh, your board of, of directors that's like your key uh, kind of like uh, own you know people who are invested in your company who own shares of your company right and your you appoint board uh, members really to reinforce just these kinds of connections right and so you have people who sit on like a dozen uh, corporate boards mm-hmm. of certain companies and they all kind of link together in this in this way through this structure I mean really but uh, you know this formation arises out of this managerial kind of need for technocrats really for you know because originally when they're building the railroads this is where it all, uh, you know the industry where this uh, kind of corporate structure really, takes off, develops its modern form is the railroads, right? Yeah. And so you, initially you don't have uh, really dedicated managers running your company. You don't have a division between uh, executives and board members. You know, it's all the same thing. The companies are too small at that point. As they get bigger, you get a diversification and specialization through these different kinds of like, you know, your CEO and your executive structure, and that splits off from your board of directors, and you get a dedicated class of, you know, managerial executives who run the company, and then the owners go off into a separate formation of the board of directors, and that gets split up as the 19th century goes along. But originally, they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and when you kind of see like this like big growth of boards and you have like the uh, the emergence of like what you call like interlocks, that's where like officers from one business are kind of holding positions and other ones. And so like what that does is, you know, we talk about like coordination problems, you know, like that's true internal to firms. But as we talked about, like when we're talking uh, at this massive scale, you're, you're going to have like coordination issues across like multiple firms. And so the interlocking board is a way to kind of like, you know, we have these massive firms, but through an interlocking board, those massive firms can kind of work in tandem with one another. So it kind of builds out like a, a structure that might not be present on paper per se, but it's present there in like these activities that take place. Yeah, and that's the problem that ultimately is the downfall of Credit Mobilari because, in fact, some Credit Mobilari companies uh, actually last until today. Oh. Really, one of the biggest shipping companies in the world. I, sh- I showed you that, right? It is, uh, you know, the James Bond one. Yeah, yeah. Like one of the partners, kind of like uh, in the new James Bond movie, whatever it's called. I don't think you showed me this, actually. No, I th- oh, no, it's great because, uh, you know, they're making the new James Bond movie and, and like, the they had to use uh, the, the port... Or like the facilities or whatever of this uh, one of these big shipping companies. It's like CMG, <laughs> I think it's called. It's like, and that's Credit Mobilari. That's like derived from them through like a, a you know a couple mergers. Oh shit! But it's still there. <laughs> it's still there today. Uh, oh, it all comes full circle. Yeah. But it, <laughs> you know, some of those companies are still there. But the ultimate downfall of Credit Mobilari itself is that it doesn't have these kind of advanced ways of structuring itself. It's all very kind of experimental up in the air at that point. Mm-hmm. And so the way that these new you know, structures, uh, they fix that problem because now you can have these uh, webs of ownership that you couldn't have before. Yeah. And so you have a, a vertically integrated kind of corporation. Really what that means is that you have a holding company that's like headquartered in New York or whatever, and then that holding company owns a bunch of different companies which really... You know, those are independent companies. Yeah, and you have like you know your your North American company. You have your European division. You know, those are different companies, right? And you have your, uh, you know, you know manufacturing company. You you you're also your uh, you know sales and marketing, and it's like these are all different functions. These are all different companies, and they're really being drawn together through this holding company. And through this, uh, you know, singular, you know, board of directors, and you know, that interlocks through all these other companies, right? It's like that is that's the structure that we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's a glue, and and it holds cartels, you know, like kind of together. Yeah, it's easy. To, it's easy to take that kind of kind of thing for granted. It's like we're we're sitting over here listening to all these Iran Contra kind of companies, and it's like this person's on this board, and this person's on this board. It's like, what does that mean? And really, you can think about it almost in terms of like this is the one meta corporation, one even bigger corporation, which you know owns all these other things, right? And it's connected through these relationships, through these interlocking boards, to kind of like build a single kind of entity. Yeah, uh, R- Rudolph 
uh, Hilferding, who was an uh, Austrian Marxist, kind of writing in this time period. Uh, like one of the, his big like focuses was on, you know, he wrote a book called Finance Capital, that I think was published in 1910. But for, for him, like one of the things that he was emphasizing was that like previously kind of like distributed elements in production were kind of com- becoming like under like one totality. And as this happened, um, you know, it was finance capital, you know, like financial structures and banks that kind of brought all elements together. You know, th- this is very intimately bound to the growth of cartels, you know, car- cartelization for Hilferding. And he's got these like really fascinating passages. I sent uh, some of them to you earlier. Yeah, those are great. Where he talks about like uh, – the, the emergence of like, you know, he's like, what, what is the limit of the cartel? And, you know, he's like, there is no limit, you know, like on the horizon, you know, we kind of see this, uh, what he calls like a general cartel, which I guess, um, I think, yeah. Um, uh, let's see if I got the quote. I don't have the quote, but, uh, oh yeah, the, the ultimate outcome of this process would be the formation of a general cartel. The whole of capitalist production would then be consciously regulated by a single body, which would determine the volume of production in all branches of industry. Price determination would become a purely nominal matter, involving only the distribution of the total product between the cartel magnates on one side and all the members of society on the other. Price would then cease to become the outcome of factual relationships into which people have entered and would become a mere accounting device by which things were allocated among people. And so, like, it's kind of like a fantastical image because, you know, like, on paper, what he's describing is, like, one company that controls everything. But I think it's, you know, in a way, we can kind of think of that through this, like, board image that we're describing. Like, the general cartel doesn't need to be one company that controls everything. You know, all you need is, like, uh, a series of companies who are interlocked through the social relations of the board and also, like, ownership structures, which often kind of move... And through the shares that, yeah, the, the shareholdings that each of them have in one another. So, like, when, when I read the general cartel in Hilferding, like, this is what I picture. is not so much, like, a literal single cartel, but kind of, like, this more kind of invisible structure of, you know, dense webs of ownership and social relations. Yeah, and this kind of, you know, uh, obviates kind of the false idea of competition because that's what part of the innovation here is, is that, it means that you don't have to really compete with your rivals anymore in business. Yeah. Because you actually can set up a company to do something and then all the people who participate in that industry, they can all invest in a proportion, you know, that they think is appropriate and get ownership of that company and they can all be board members of it. And then, you know, they're coordinating through doing this. They're not, you know, it allows them to not have to compete with one another. That's something we mentioned about like all the oil stuff and like mm-hmm. these big oil companies and how they wanted to set up a cartel because they were, you know, uh, all kind of sick personally of, you know, the level of kind of industrial warfare that was breaking up between them is that they wanted to set up just that, a central kind of cartel that they could all buy into, right? And they could, yeah. you know, determine the relative risks of it and be like, I'm going to get 25% or whatever of this central company and then you know they're able to that way mitigate kind of their their relative risks and rewards for engaging in an enterprise and then you know they're not you don't have to compete with their rivals anymore 
Yeah, and, and this was kind of seen as like a, a threat to the public in a lot of places when this first started happening. Like, um, I, I thought this was pretty interesting. Like, the, the first, like, they launched an investigation into interlocks in Germany in as early as, like, 1905, which that's earlier than the American, like, investigations into it. But um, this investigation in Germany found that there was uh, 1,350 interlocking directorates between the six, six biggest banks in industry. And, you know, the people who were investigating it called it, like, a, a new phase in German industrial development. Um we're going to see that exactly in America, the same, you know, the same type of thing, same investigations. Yeah, that, that, that happens like about five years later, which is the, the Pujo Committee, which kind of, you know, there is this allegation that something exists that was called the, the Money Trust, which is an invisible cartel that like worked through both like ownership structures and like the interlocking board directorates. And, you know, the, the Pujo Committee is really interesting because they actually kind of discovered that the money trust did exist and um, discovered that there was, like, extreme concentration that was in the banking and financial sectors. Yeah. And it ended up tracing it back to, like, uh, kind of, I think, like, 15 to 20 different financial institutions. And it was led by, like, J.P. Morgan and James Stilwell, uh, the Rockefellers, Coombe Loeb, and the and the Her- the Hermans were, uh, and, and the Warburgs, you know, were the people that the Pujo Committee was like, oh, these people, I think they ended up like through, you know, quite like thousands of, you know, in- interlocking boards and ownership structures just kind of like dominated all major financial institutions in America at this point, but also exerted uh, significant controls over, you know, railroads and industry as well. And this is something that's hard then to um, put in empirical terms is, you know, I just trying to find like some graphs or, or charts to kind of like, you know, put in more concrete terms, like what is the power of like the Rockefeller family? Yeah. Right? And it's like, that's impossible to measure just in like a dollar amount because you have to understand that, you know, the point is, is that you have like five Rockefeller brothers or whatever. They're all on, you know, a dozen or two dozen boards of different charities and different companies. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do you start measuring the actual influence that they have over the total combined capital of all these different kinds of uh, of institutions? It's like when you have, uh, you know, David Rockefeller, he's the CEO of Chase Manhattan Bank, and then you have. Uh, you know Nelson Rockefeller, and he's vice president of the fucking country, and he's also like, yeah. you know, has his IBEC, but he doesn't even own his company IBEC really in an immediate direct sense. But he's like has the ownership installed in these other trusts. It's like, you know, you can't measure this in any kind of concrete terms because it's just through this structure that you can like channel your influence. Mm-hmm. And like make it like magnify it like a thousandfold. Yeah, uh, you know, and get influence over a huge amount of capital controlled by many different companies. Um, there's a really interesting example. I think a more contemporary one that kind of also illustrates exactly the problem that you're talking about. Uh, like back in like 2007, uh, so, some Italian, I think, econophysists 
kind of physicists uh, did a study, you know, to like see who owned like the bulk of the world's like financial industry. And they wrote a paper on it that people can look up if they're interested. It's it's called the the network of global corporate control. And they ended up like tracing, you know, through ownership structures all the way up to like about 147 different companies that were themselves kind of interlocked. And these included things like Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, you know, at the time, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, uh, Deutsche Bank, Barclays. Uh, But their study, like, I mean, is extremely like illustrative, like BlackRock's one of them. Uh, But it doesn't really account for it, it accounts for like the financial connections between these firms but it doesn't account for like the social connections it doesn't account for like the the power of like interlocking boards for example and it doesn't account for like the the political influence they had like uh both you know goldman sachs and BlackRock basically managed the, you know, bailout of the 08 economic crisis. And, you know, it's hard. You run into, like, kind of quantification and empirical problems, epistemological problems, you know, trying to quantify, like, how, how do you account for, like, political power and social power and economic power simultaneously? Because, you know, all those are elements that you have to take into consideration when you're talking about these massive uh, networks. Yeah, because it all plays into each other. Because what we're going to see is that, you know, these networks, people are able to have someone else set something up through like the another company, and they're a board member of that company. It's like, you know, they they're able to kind of set up situations for you know another company to come in, and then you know they create opportunities to exploit. Uh, you know, they create situations to profit from. It's like they're able to do a lot of manipulation because they're really covering such a a, a wide berth of of different activities and industries and like philanthropy and you know production and and financing and 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 politics. It's like you know there's no way to really quantify it you know at all. Yeah, and that's kind of the point of why this structure even comes. I'm sorry, but uh, you know to interrupt you, but you know just this is why this structure actually uh, Are you good? You good? comes about like in uh, you know with this New Jersey corporate law and with the Delaware law in 1899 is that it's to circumvent the ability of people to actually uh, not only prosecute them but to really measure this or to know about it. That's why it's all private. That's why they don't have to publish in Delaware who owns the companies and who the directors are and you know that's all protected. And so the point of that was to really to circumvent the antitrust laws that were formed in this country the the anti uh, the Sherman antitrust law to get around that sidestep it and to create a structure that was, you know, specifically tailored uh to really you know, get around this and to obfuscate how much you know control people had over uh, you know these interlocking kind of ownership structures. Yeah, it, the the antitrust you know movement emerged kind of in the direct context, especially when we talk about like the Pujo Committee. You know, the allegations that it was investigating around like the money trust. Uh, these were like you know the the money trust was something that the antitrust, you know, kind of like muckraking journalists uh, were, were alleging. And so that, that's, you know, did spiral up into this. But, you know, especially if you consider something with like standard oil, yeah, like, uh, 
you know, you can bust one of these companies up, but these structures, yeah, just allow them kind of to like regroup, you know, kind of like the Terminator in the second movie gets blown <laughs> up and like I hate those. Kind of you know oh I'm sorry. Gloops back together. I just hate Terminator too. I hate that movie. I hate uh, all yeah. of the James Cameron movies. I hate I hate true lies. They're so long and boring. What what about you you dislike aliens too? Oh man. Or aliens, I guess. I like aliens. You know, I I don't mind that one. It's you know That's but, pretty aliens is fun, man. Yeah, I just don't like James Cameron. His movies are so long. Yeah, he sucks. You fuck him. Uh, but, you know, to, I guess, you know, that's some nice levity. We're not all about corporate law. We also have cultural commentary about, uh, you know. Yeah, it's important. How this how this reflects on the PMC and whatnot. I'm going to open up the fucking Panama Papers website. And I'm going to look up and see if James Cameron's got any <laughs> offshore money. I mean, I guess this this will be the the end of the, this kind of part because we did kind of go through what the uh, the corporate law, the banking structures that I think were really essential to understand. Uh, I think this is going to work backwards to previous episodes to kind of provide more illumination. Yeah, because we did touch, you know, a little bit on like interlocks and stuff in the like, especially like in the Iran Contra episode. But also thinking about like in the JFK episode, like we really kind of emphasized, you know, like we tracked Oswald through like a social environment in Dallas. And, you know, like that's kind of what we're talking about is how like these social environments, you know, like that's the terrain that like intelligence gathering operates. You know, there's really no distinction between the two. So it's, you know, none of this is really that aberrant. Yeah. And that's something that people get tripped up on. Uh, You know, the point is, is that this is all, it's, it's very simple in the sense that it's not like a huge conspiracy where you're going to get killed, you know, for uh, knowing, like, there's nothing really like that. There's no, like, secret, unless a couple people do get killed, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, for, for most people, it's like, you know, it's not like there's a secret, really, that was, like, the forbidden knowledge that you get, like, exploded for or whatever. <laughs> you're not going to be driven to madness. <laughs> uh, it's all very out in the open, right? It's in... Yeah, it's in newspaper articles. You know, you can get some. You know, you can go to Delaware. You can ultimately get the 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 franchise tax filings if if you want. We're we're not able to do it this time just because it's the holidays and and kind of the offices are are closed everywhere for some of this stuff. But also, COVID really cram, like cramps your style when you're trying to get shit. Yes, it's real bad. I've had COVID shut down more like you know Freedom of Information Act requests and. You know, attempts to get papers out of archives drive me crazy, man. It's bumming me out. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, that's the point is that it's it's very sociological. It's very rooted in all these social networks of just you know regular interactions that these people have with one another. Introductions that get get made. You know, somebody comes to you. They they're like, here is this Nazi oil man. And, uh, you know, the Tolstoy uh, Foundation that you can go talk to, Lee Harvey Oswald. It's like, that's, you know... Right. That doesn't implicate necessarily that we're saying that that's, uh, uh, you know, proof of guilt or something. But once you understand how uh, Lee Harvey Oswald or somebody like that navigates through this kind of labyrinth of, uh, uh, you know, social connections, you can begin to really understand that, 
he's being like led in certain directions. Yeah. Uh, that he's going from one person to another person, but those people have relationships that he's not aware of, and that there were you know have mutual interests that he is you know being manipulated to support. It's like that's that's really you know the the key thing here. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's not something that's unique to to that episode like, you know, the the Kennedy assassinations like kind of an extreme example, but the vast majority are like far more mundane examples. You know, you know well, look, look at what like the the bulk of what the CIA does. It's like, you know, collects data that just seems really banal, you know, like uh or prices, or you know, how much does copper does this country produce, or you know, stuff of that nature. And that's that's the point is that not only the getting all that information, centralizing it, and basically being able to break it down into uh, you know a very simple form that compiles all of it that gets you know that's power is you know that's the whole point of it and. Uh, you know that's why it's important to actually study a lot of the specifics of these uh, you know relationships. Like I saw you just post on on Twitter a while ago, like about uh, buying a, something at the hotel lobby or something on you know this this particular day. Oh yeah, so somebody was complaining that I guess that we do too much research and that we're <laughs> too detail oriented. It was just like this bizarre thing to me. They were like, oh, what if? Uh, you know, who cares if uh, Chamberlain bought a, you know, a churro at the Hilton or something like that? And it's just like, I don't know, like, that's literally how knowledge is kind of formed. You know, it's through these, like, weird scraps of paper and, you know, travel itineraries. And, like, like honestly, like, go... That's how you, you know, yeah, get the actual connections. You know, you... Yeah, go, go back to any, like, history book. Like... In any like you know like history book like worth its salt like if you trace the sources far enough back, that's the kind of shit that you're gonna find anyways. So I don't really get the complaint. Yeah, like you know that's that's the whole point with like uh, Iran Contra with um, the uh, October surprise and like is William J Casey setting this up? It's like that's how you would confirm that. You know the whole uh, denial is that saying William J. Casey wasn't at a hotel on a particular date. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if you had a receipt for a churro at the hotel, that would prove that it happened. And then that would, <laughs> you know, that would be a big deal. Yeah. So yes, you know, knowing those details, that's exactly how you establish that somebody was at the lobby of this company at this particular time and it's this person's company and they have their office, you know, you, you know, just even knowing like physically, you know, how an office is set up in a lot of these cases, like who sits, sits next to who, uh, you know, wh that's very important. People would be surprised how much of our research is literally that, by the way, like, you know, looking at, yeah, like spatial relations or, you know, like trying to establish timetables in which people are in certain places. That That's a major component to all this. Yeah, and it's like how you look at a billion, look, what's the office number? Like, what else is there? Like, uh, you know, how many blocks away is this from Rockefeller Center? It's like you find stuff, it's like, it's like this is within three blocks of Rockefeller Center. Uh, is this office for this other thing? It's like that's like across the street, basically in New York City. It's like, hmm, yeah, you know, it's not none of it's definitive on its own. But the point is, you have to compile a, l a large volume of this information, and then that's when you can start to see 
the actual connections that run through all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like well, one thing, I, I guess we'll talk more about this in the next segment, but like, you know, there, there were like kind of three groups that we were looking at, you know, for in this research. And through like some old court documents, like I found that not only were they located in the same building, but they shared the exact same meeting room. And from then there, it was able to like produce that like a lot of these people were like, you know, there was interlocks between these three groups. So like you have these interlocks and the fact that they're like located in the exact same, you know, space. These are effectively the same organization, even though like outwardly they don't appear as such. Mm, that's how it all happens, baby. That's how the sausage is made. You may not like it, but yes, we are out here sitting up at 3 a.m. in the morning, uh, newspaper archiving, searching Paul Healywell to find out, like, you know, the the members of his RNC, <laughs> you know, uh, delegation for Eisenhower and, like, who the Miami delegates are and, like, newspapers from, like, 1952. It's like, yeah. that's that's the essential thing. That's what, the, you know, you actually have to do. Um, exactly. You can nag us on Twitter all you want, but it's not going to change it. Yeah, we're the big boys. You're, you know, we're we're at the top here, and you know that's why we're the best. And uh, you know, we got <laughs> the next section. I, you know, I guess you know we can we to set up to set it up. We're going to be talking about kind of like shipbuilding, World War One, mm-hmm. exciting stuff, Hog Island. Uh, you know, yes. Empire Trust. Oh, we have the the Brotherhood of Railway Engineers. Oh my God! Oh, very cool things. I love it. Oh, so we'll we'll be back in a, uh, just a moment, and uh, I'm excited. Now we're getting into it. Now I I can starting to get excited as we we get into the 20th century here. Yeah, we we got past the abstract, and now we're onto the concrete. Good evening, happy family members and stockholders of the W.V. Whipple Manufacturing Corporation. This year, as you've already perceived, we are bringing you the story of your company's progress via the motion picture screen. And now to the stunning and exciting news, which I believe you'll agree shows once again that at Whipple's, we only take forward steps. And now, family members and stockholders of the Whipple Corporation, this is the X109B14 modified transistorized totally automatic assembly machine which eliminates 61,000 jobs, 73 bulky inefficient machines, 81,000 needless man hours for 11 working days, and $4 million in expenditures each year for employee hospitalization employee insurance, employee welfare, and employee profit participation. Even as you stockholders are watching this film, the first model of the X109B14 modified transistorized machine is being placed into operations here in our Midwestern main plant. Within six months, our entire production facilities will be totally automated. Ladies and gentlemen, from now on, Whipple will operate from a brain center with machines such as this one. What's the name of the, the, the plant for him? Dickerson, yeah, Dickerson, that's his name. Uh, get him up here for me, will you? I'm going to indulge in some of that heartfelt compassion that you hunger for. I'm going to give him and his staff four months' notice. Now, I put it to you, Hanley, is that compassionate or isn't it? Now, you, you go get him, would you please, Hanley? Get him up here and hold his hand, dry his eyes, pat him on the head. 
Tell me something, Mr. Whipple. When you're dead and buried, who do you get to mourn for you? Shall I tell you the difference, Mr. Dickerson, between you and it? That machine costs two cents an hour per current. It lasts indefinitely. It gets no wrinkles, no arthritis, no hardening of the arteries. That one machine is a lathe operator, a press operator. Two of those machines replace 114 men that take no coffee breaks, no sick leaves, no vacations with pay. They should have stopped you a year ago. Somebody ought to held you down and put a bit in your head and poured in some reminders that men have to eat and work. And you can't pack them in cosmoline like surplus tanks or put them on your pasture like old bones. I'm a man, Mr. Whipple. You hear me? I'm a man. And that makes me better than that hunk of metal, you hear me? Better!